Previously on The Secret Sits, Patrick Ireland has just been rescued by throwing himself out of a second-story library window, and the SWAT team has begun clearing the building. And that is where we find ourselves while we pick up our story today. Welcome to The Secret Sits. I'm your host, John Dodson. Join us every Thursday as we uncover the secrets behind the world's most fascinating true crime cases. You can find all episodes of The Secret Sits for free on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you are hearing, reach out to us on Instagram and Facebook at The Secret Sits Podcast or on Twitter at Secret Sits Pod. Now, on with our story. Two forty-seven p.m., and the exterior doors to the cafeteria flew open as one hundred and twenty students who had been located were ushered outside to safety. This is a scene most remembered from this day. A long stream of children, high school children, but in this moment, they may have well been kindergartners, pouring from the school, their hands raised and placed on the back of their heads, elbows sticking out to the side. Police officers patted down each student and then hugged them and let them know they were safe. From outside of the building, the police could see a sign had been made. It was hanging from science room three. It said, one, bleeding to death. Coach Sanders, who had been bleeding to death, was still clinging to life, but he did not have time on his side. There is an illusion with this case that there had been a big standoff between the police and Eric and Dylan. But that's not true. Eric and Dylan perpetrated this crime and were also dead, all within 49 minutes. It took the police over three hours to clear the building, but Eric and Dylan, unbeknownst to the police, had been dead before they ever even entered the building. Police reached the library at 3.15 p.m. Here they discovered the greatest sight of carnage in the entire school. Here they found 12 bodies, 10 students, and two killers. They also discovered one person who remained in the library, injured but clinging to life. Lisa Kreutz was laying on her side, and paramedic Troy Lehman turned the girl onto her back to see if she was alive. As she rotated over, her eyes were wide open, and tears began trickling down her desperate face. Lisa was rushed to Denver Health Medical Center. She had a shattered left shoulder from a shotgun blast. One of her hands and both of her arms were also injured. She was dangerously close to dying of blood loss, but Lisa was strong, and Lisa pulled through. The police identified Eric and Dylan as the shooters 
because, for one, most of the bodies they had found were hidden or in defensive positions. These two boys were sitting right out in the open. Coach Dave Sanders was one of the teachers who was still unaccounted for. The sign the police could see from outside of the building, one bleeding to death, had been an alert for the coach's sake. Police initially feared that this was possibly a ruse by the shooters. At 2.30 p.m., police in the building noticed a shirt tied to the door handle of Science Room 3, and they began evacuating the students from this room. The students who had been tending to Coach Sanders' wounds had a lot of trepidation about leaving him behind, but the SWAT team did not give them a choice. The officers moved the wounded coach into a storage room. He was still clinging onto life, but just several minutes before the SWAT team was able to evacuate the coach from the building, he lost his struggle and he bled to death. Dave Sanders was the only teacher to die during the shooting. He died helping to save as many of his precious students as he possibly could. The family members of the students and staff members were told to meet at the nearby Leewood Elementary School. Here is where they could receive information about their loved one's status. All of the students removed from the school, all teachers and school employees were taken away to be deposed. They also received medical treatment for minor injuries before being placed onto buses and moved to the Leewood Elementary School to meet up with their eagerly waiting families. Some of the shooting victims' families were told to stay at the elementary school to wait on one final bus. But that bus never arrived. The lack of bodies was a big problem. How can you identify your child as a victim with no body to see? The students who had borne witness knew who they believed had been killed. They had seen many of the deaths with their very own eyes. Brian Rohrbau woke on Wednesday morning to a phone call. A friend called him to let him know that there was a photo in the Rocky Mountain News that he may not want to look at. But Brian had to see it. He flipped through the paper. Every page was covered in stories about the shooting, along with pictures of forlorn students grieving for their friends and their lost innocence. There on page 13 was an overhead shot taken from one of the news helicopters. The photo took up half of the page. In the image, at least six students were huddled behind a car, with a policeman squeezed in with them, his rifle positioned across the trunk of the car. But what caught Brian's attention was a boy lying on a sidewalk, completely unprotected. He was on his side. One knee was pulled up toward his chest. One arm stretched out. A foot from the body was an enormous pool of blood. The caption of the photograph was motionless. The newspaper did not identify who the boy was, but Brian knew instantly. 
Danny was the only person Brian had in his life. His son, his boy, his whole world. Brian got into his car and drove right to the school. When he arrived, he walked up to the school's perimeter and demanded that they give him his boy's body. The police had to tell him no. This was a crime scene and an ongoing investigation. And not only did they not turn Danny's body over to his father that day, they did nothing with Danny's body. It was just left there. He was not brought inside. He was left on the sidewalk. The only body visible outside of the school. And he was left there. And the night came. And he was left there. And then it started to snow. And still, Danny was left there. Danny laid there on the sidewalk for 28 hours. A large Catholic church named Light of the World offered their space for a gathering of all of the kids, parents, and teachers on Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Mr. D had spent the night praying over what to say. The church holds 850 people, and every available space was taken, and then some. A bunch of local officials took turns at the microphone. There was polite applause for each speaker as they finished. Polite applause was more than Mr. D expected from this group of heartbroken people. But when his name was announced, he stood to approach the podium. And suddenly, everyone was rising from their pews, shouting, cheering, and applauding. These kids, who hadn't smiled in hours, now rallied together to cheer on their trusted friend and administrator. A man who was meant to be there for them, not the other way around. Mr. D sagged at the waist and turned his back to the shouting crowd. Uncontrollable sobs came from him so quickly, he did not have a chance to fight them back. A full minute passed as the now rowdy crowd refused to stop cheering for their hero. When he finally made it to the podium, the crowd settled and Mr. D was able to speak. I am so sorry for what happened and for what you are feeling. I will be there for you whenever you need it. I'd like to take a wand and wipe away what you are feeling, but I can't do that. I'd like to tell you those scars will heal, but they will not. The students were so understanding. This was the first person who spoke to them only in truths, and they recognize it immediately. Mr. D ended his speech by telling the students that he loved each and every one of them, and they appreciated hearing that too. The investigation into this tragedy was 
a complete mess from the very beginning. The police did not want anyone moving in on the school until the SWAT teams had located the shooters' bodies. There was a fear that the two boys had booby-trapped some of the dead bodies or themselves. After finding Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold in the library, the school was declared safe around 4.30 p.m. And then, around 5.30 p.m., police discovered more explosives in the senior parking lot and on the roof of the school. At 6.15 p.m., the bomb sitting in Dylan's car was discovered, still sitting there, ready to ignite the car's gas tank. At this point, the entire school was declared a crime scene. At 10.40 p.m., there was an explosion. A member of the bomb squad was attempting to remove an unexploded pipe bomb when he accidentally hit a striking match attached to the bomb against the wall of the ordnance disposal trailer. The explosion was contained inside of the trailer. No one was injured from this incident. April 21st, at 8.30 a.m., the official death toll was released. 15 dead. Broken down, this was 12 students killed, two shooters dead by suicide, and one teacher dead. An additional 20 students and one teacher were injured, but not killed during the attack. At 10 a.m., the bomb squad releases the building to officials, and at 11.30 a.m., a spokesman for the sheriff's office makes an official statement that the investigation is now underway. At this point, 13 of the bodies are still inside of the school. They would remain as investigators went through the building taking photographs. During the late afternoon and into the evening, the bodies were slowly removed from the school and taken to the coroner's office to be autopsied. At 5 p.m., an official statement was released, which included the names of those confirmed dead in the massacre. April 22nd, the day following the initial investigation, which also included removing the bodies from the school. And on this day, police finally discover the bombs set up in the cafeteria. Kids from the school flooded the local ICU, just needing to be near Patrick Ireland as his situation continued to look grim. Patrick's parents were told to keep their hopes low. As every seat in the waiting room was taken, every minute of the day, the staff at the hospital began bringing food out to the teenagers, who were just sitting there in shock, still trying to wrap their heads around what had happened to them. The doctors did not operate on Patrick's broken foot. There were more pressing matters for them to deal with on Patrick's road to survival. And they also thought that he would never need that foot again, as the boy was going to be paralyzed. Mackay was released from St. Anthony's on Friday. He had been right beside Patrick when he had been shot through his knee. During a press conference on CNN, Mackay told the world that he knew Dylan. They had taken French together and had even worked together on a couple of school projects. Mackay said, he was a nice guy, never treated me bad. He wasn't the kind of person he's being portrayed as. On that same Friday, 
Patrick was moved out of ICU and into a normal hospital room. And then he returned to Columbine in the fall to finish school. Only now he was assisted by a walking cane to support his weight as he walked. On September 25th, 1999, Patrick Ireland was elected Columbine's homecoming king. He went on to graduate from Columbine as co-valedictorian. He now works as a wealth management advisor. He is married with two daughters. In the immediate aftermath of this horrific day, people looked for answers or an explanation. How could this happen? Why here? Why these boys? And the Columbine shooting exploded in the local and national media. Eric and Dylan were talked about on the news as part of the trench coat mafia. And this was even before the bodies had been located. It was a myth. It was fiction. A way for people who were scared about what was happening in their community to place blame or identify the boogeyman. The stories that came out were about a pair of outcast goth kids in trench coats tearing apart a school, looking for the jocks who had made their lives miserable. But there were no targets. There was no ongoing feud with the jocks, and the trench coat mafia just simply did not exist. It has been over 20 years since this tragedy, and those who have studied this case know that these things are untrue. But the common consciousness of the USA just goes on believing these stories because they were the first ones people had heard. The next big narrative was that the killers were outcasts because they were gay. One sophomore from the soccer team said of the two killers, they are freaks, nobody really liked them, just because they were gay and everybody would make fun of them. Others said they saw the boys touching in the halls, romantically touching, and possibly even holding hands. This gay rumor gained almost no traction in the media, but good old Reverend Jerry Falwell took this rumor and ran with it. He appeared on Rivera Live talking about the case, and the infamous Westboro Baptist Church stated, two filthy fags slaughtered 13 people at Columbine High. They're truly a classy act. Another story from this day, which spread like wildfire, was that of Cassie Bernal and Rachel Scott, and how their deaths actually took place. As I have already talked about Cassie's final moments, I really don't want to go back through it again, but this is something which also needs clarity. The big story here was that Cassie was the girl in the library who Dylan had asked if she believed in God. She said yes, and he shot her anyway. And Cassie's fame grew from this story. It grew to the point where evangelical Christians began regarding Rachel Scott and Cassie Bernal as Christian martyrs. Richard Castaldo, who was next to Rachel Scott, stated that Eric Harris asked Rachel if she believed in God. She answered, you know I do. 
and he shot and killed the girl. After some time, Richard has said he's not sure this is exactly the exchange between the two. As far as Cassie Bernal, she was killed by Eric Harris in the library. Emily Wyant was the closest person to Cassie when she was killed. Emily said that the do-you-believe-in-God interaction never took place between Eric and Cassie. Joshua Lapp believed that Cassie had been the one asked about her beliefs, but he was unable to point out where Cassie had been killed. Joshua had been closer to Valene Schnur during the rampage in the library. Craig Scott also claimed that the question had been directed toward Cassie. However, when Craig was questioned more about the situation, Craig pointed to the desk where Valene had been shot. Valene herself claims that the question about believing in God had been directed at her. The death toll from this shooting did not end on this day. Even after the two misguided youths had taken their own lives, the things that they set into motion on this day continued to spiral and take even more lives. Six months after the Columbine shooting, Anne-Marie Hochhalter's mother, who had been struggling with depression for at least three years before the shootings, was hospitalized for issues with her mental state. On October 14, 1999, she was released to an outpatient program. Eight days later, Carla Hochhalter walked into the Alpha Pawn Shop in Inglewood. She calmly walked up to the counter and asked the clerk to see a gun. She wanted to hold it and give it a dry test fire. The clerk handed the woman the gun to look at, and when he turned away to fill out Miss Hockhalter's background check, Carla quietly pulled several bullets out of her pocket, which she had brought in with her, unbeknownst to the store clerk. She loaded the gun without anyone noticing and then she shot herself, right there, in front of eight to ten witnesses. She would be pronounced dead later at the hospital. Now, this is not to say that the Columbine shooting directly led to her death. After all, her daughter had been wounded but survived, and she had had mental health issues well before the shooting took place. But I'm sure this terrible incident did not help things. Greg Barnes, a 17-year-old student who had witnessed the shooting of Coach Dave Sanders, committed suicide in May of 2000. Shooting survivor Austin Eubanks was injured during the rampage in the library. Austin had been hiding under a table with his best friend Corey DePuter when Dylan Klebold shot under the table with his gun. Austin covered his head with his hands and arms. But when he looked up, he saw his best friend, riddled with bullet holes, and he knew that he was dead. Austin was later treated for a bullet wound to his hand, and a bullet had also grazed his knee. While recovering from his injuries, Austin became addicted to opioids. 
He finally beat this addiction and would openly speak about his prior addiction. Sadly, Austin died from an accidental overdose in 2019. He was 37 years old. The heartbreaking mass shooting at Columbine High School did bring about some good and necessary changes when it came to police responses to situations similar to this one. Holding a perimeter as a first-wave response to a mass shooting is now gone. A national task force was organized to create new plans for these types of events, and in 2003, they released the Active Shooter Protocol. This new process is pretty simple. If the shooter is still active, storm the building. Move toward the sound of gunfire. All victims are to be disregarded until the threat is neutralized. Stop the shooter, take any means necessary, killing them is completely on the table. The main focus for this new protocol was the simple word active. If the shooter is not actively firing shots, the traditional tactics would still be used. Set up a perimeter and negotiate. Save lives. One week after the shooting, on a cold hilltop, 15 crosses were erected. They were constructed of plain raw lumber from a warehouse store. Looking up at the hill, the crosses stood in silhouette. Your mind could play tricks on you. Sometimes the crosses appeared to be 15 nomadic people moving through the landscape, looking for their next home. For the first couple of days, the crosses seemed helpful. They helped unify the people of Columbine, and they gave a place for people to visit and mourn. Quickly, however, these crosses also became a beacon for discord. Some of the victims' parents felt that it was wrong to have memorial crosses for Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris there, standing right there on the hill beside their own victims' crosses, as if they were not responsible for this entire incident. The crosses had been made by a carpenter, a 49-year-old carpenter named Greg Zanis. Greg lived in Aurora, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. He is married to his wife, called Susan, and together Greg and Susan have five children. Greg Zanis purchased lumber from a hardware store and constructed the 15 crosses. He then packed them into his truck and began the 16-hour drive to Columbine High School. Together with his 16-year-old son, Chris, the crosses were positioned along the top of the hill, sitting like sentinels overlooking the school. When the questions began popping up about the crosses made for Dylan and Eric, Greg said that he did not even think of not making crosses for the two boys who had also died. Greg's wife, Susan, stated, My husband did it out of love. They still have parents. If you are a parent, you know you don't want your child to go astray. But Susan also understands the parents who were upset about the crosses for the two shooters as well. 
Why did Greg Zanis do this? Why even build these crosses? Why drive 16 hours across the country to deliver something no one had asked for in the first place? Just three years prior to the Columbine shooting, Susan Zanis's father, Ralph K. Stadler, was shot and killed in his office. Ralph had been a landlord and had just served eviction papers to a tenant. That evening, two people showed up to Ralph's office and shot and killed the 71-year-old man. Greg would be the one to find his father-in-law's body, and this would be the first cross Greg ever built. Just a few months after this, a six-year-old child named Nico Contreras was shot in a gang-related shooting while sleeping in his grandparents' home. Nico's mother asked Greg Zanis to build a memorial cross for her son. In that moment, Greg knew he had found his purpose in life. After this, Greg traveled the country placing thousands of his homemade crosses at sites of murders, drive-by shootings, or children killed by drunk drivers. Every time a resident of his town was killed, Greg built them a cross. The mourners at Columbine were split about the crosses made for the two lecherous youths. Some visitors would place black plastic bags over Eric and Dylan's crosses, and then others would remove the bags. Obscene letters were left on these two crosses, and at night, police would come and remove anything unkind from the monument. That Saturday, 18-year-old Sarah Howard is waiting in the long line going up the hill to visit the crosses. It has been raining for almost a week, and the ground is saturated and pliable, making the walk up the muddy hill even more difficult. Sarah had brought with her a handful of daisies to lay at Lauren Townsend's cross. The rain still falling, the air is chilly, and Sarah's mother offers to help cover the girl with her umbrella. But she stands there with mud splattered on her overalls. Her hair is matted against her head, and she mutters to her mother, I'm not cold. The crosses became a place of pilgrimage. People came from all over to pay their respects at this makeshift memorial. People wrote on the crosses. The rain washes off all but the hardest of the ink. More writing then replaces it. Eric Harris's cross was inscribed with, May God forgive you. Your lives were lost long before this ever happened. He's still God's child and is loved. You also deserve our compassion. Hate kills the soul. And shame on you. That Friday, Brian Rohrbau climbed the hill to the crosses and tore down the two crosses placed to honor the two boys who had murdered his son in cold blood. He carried the two crosses back down the hill. Rosaries and flowers attached to the crosses swayed 
back and forth as he made his way down the hill with them. Tom Mauser, father of Daniel Mauser, who was killed at Columbine, was marching outside of the National Rifle Association's annual meeting, carrying a sign that stated, My son Daniel died at Columbine. He'd want me to be here today. On Saturday morning, as mourners ascended the hill and reached the location of Eric and Dylan's missing crosses, some said it wasn't right that the crosses were gone. So they made smaller makeshift crosses and left those for the two boys. Sarah Howard said, If we hate him, we become like him. We hate too. This is how it starts. It would take almost nine years before a permanent memorial would be constructed. President Bill Clinton flew in for the dedication. He said, I am here today because millions of Americans were changed by Columbine. It was one of the darkest days Hillary and I had in the White House. We wept. We prayed. This was a momentous event in the history of our country, and every parent was left feeling helpless, even the president. Patrick Ireland got married to Casey. Mr. D was in attendance, and he shed a tear as Patrick walked down the aisle and then danced at his reception. Casey Bernal's parents moved away to New Mexico. Eric Harris's parents sold their house but remain in the area secluded, and they do not speak to anyone about the shooting. Dylan Klebold's parents still live in the same house, and their other son, Byron got married in 2006. Mr. D retired in 2013, right after graduation. At the memorial dedication, 13 white doves were released to symbolize those whose lives had been taken. And then an additional 200 more doves were released. And as the 200 headed to the sky, the 13 joined back into the flock. And once again, they were all together. Bright white doves flying together in a sea of light blue. The shootings were an event that occurred, Patrick Ireland said, but it did not define me as a person. It did not set the tone for the rest of my life. I'm John Dodson. And I thank you for joining us today on The Secret Sits. The Secret Sits podcast is researched and written by me, John Dodson. Audio engineering by Gabriel Dodson. Original logo artwork provided by Tony Lay.